My name is Nathan Forster, and I'm asking the big questions of authors and activists, scholars and survivors, poets and priests, therapists and theologians, and everyone in between. This will be a resource for people who, deep in their bones, think, surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we have sometimes put it in. And what better way to discover this than by learning people's stories and their specialities, in order that we may deepen and widen our perspective on faith, community, society, and life. So, journey with me as we go deeper and wider. In this week's episode, we speak with Ched Myers on Sabbath economics. Now, I know for some people that any talk of economics might stir the political pot. My simple conviction is this. If we say Jesus is Lord, then it has to affect everything in the world. Otherwise, Jesus is just a Lord over my life or Lord over, quote, spiritual things, quote, but not Lord over all creation. This episode then is simply asking the question that, as Christians who believe Jesus is King should be asking, and that's, what is the economics of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' rule and reign on the earth? Now, a lot of theories and ideas have come with this exact question, but I thought we would find someone who engages Scripture deeply through an economic lens, who's both a scholar of the Bible and also somebody who lives this economic vision of both the Hebrew and Christian Scriptures. And that person is Ched Myers. Ched Myers is an activist theologian who has worked in social change movements for more than 40 years. With a degree in New Testament from the Graduate Theological Union, he is a popular educator, animating scripture and building literacy in an engagement with historic and current movements for peace and justice. His books include Binding the Strong Man, a political reading of Mark's story of Jesus, Watershed Discipleship, Re-Inhabiting Bioregional Faith and Practice, and his forthcoming book, Healing Haunted Histories, A Settler Discipleship of Decolonization, which is written alongside his partner, Elaine Enns. He and his partner, Elaine, who herself is a restorative justice practitioner, both live in the Ventura River watershed in Southern California, where they co-direct Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. So here is this week's interview with Ched Myers as we talk about Sabbath economics, or what I call an economics of the kingdom of God. So perhaps tell our listeners a bit about your faith journey. Well, uh... Nathan, I'm 65 years old, uh, and I've been in uh, walking in the faith for 47 years, uh, which means I'm almost to my jubilee year. I uh, wasn't raised in the church. Uh, I grew up in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. I encountered the gospel for the first time in the early 1970s, and shortly after that, encountered people who I guess how I would describe them is that they were exegeting the gospel with their lives. It, it was uh, they were great emissaries of of the faith, and they were doing things that mattered. So, 
1976 is when I really drank the Kool-Aid on uh, a movement concerning a movement that we uh, today call the Radical Discipleship Movement. And uh, I want to give respect to uh, the fact that this this Radical Discipleship Movement um, has a long history uh, in uh, in Great Britain and U.S. and also in Australia. Uh, New Zealand, New Zealand, and two two people in particular were extremely influential in uh, my my growing into this. And w- one of them was Athel Gill, a New Testament theologian in uh, in Melbourne at Whitley College, um, and he he was uh, a founder of the House of the Gentle Bunyip in mm-hmm. uh, in Clifton Hill in Melbourne, and. Uh, <clears throat> And John Hurt, who um, lives uh, still today, Athel passed away in the mid '90s. But uh, John John Hurt was a, a very uh, popular preacher and animator of radical discipleship mm-hmm. uh, out of Sydney, and for a while in Victoria as well. Um, so both John and, and Athel were real shapers of radical discipleship in Australia, and so. My life is deeply intertwined with the Australian movement, um, and uh, and so we are, in a sense, siblings, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, I, I, I worked uh, quite a bit in the uh, 80s and 90s as an activist. Worked with the Quakers um, in uh, organizing around issues of social justice and peacemaking. Also did a fair amount of writing after attending seminary. Um, wrote, wrote a couple of books. In the late 1990s, uh, there was a burgeoning movement called the Jubilee 2000 movement, leading up to the turn of the millennium. And this movement was a faith-based movement all around the world, in both southern and northern hemispheres, mm-hmm. to attempt to address the long-standing global disparity between rich nations and poor nations, most poor nations being poor because they are um, highly indebted to uh, rich nations. So there was a a strong uh, church-based movement uh, called the Jubilee 2000 movement. It got famous when Bono um, joined forces with it, but he was kind of a latecomer. Uh, And they were attempting to get uh, debt relief for Mm -hmm. the highly indebted nations as a structural uh, shift in global economic justice. And uh, it was a very popular movement, um, and they asked me to uh, try to distill some of the theological principles from Scripture mm-hmm. for, for why Christians and others might be interested in these sorts of issues. And that's what led me to first uh, collect some, uh, some essays that um, had to do with what I call Sabbath economics in both testaments. And so for the last 20 years, we've been uh, <clears throat> promoting the both the theological vision of Sabbath economics and also personal and political practices of it. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch. Um, for the mm. last 20 plus years, um, we've worked out of our base in Ventura County, which is north of Los Angeles, uh, 
and we run a small nonprofit organization called Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Mm-hmm. And that uh, out of this, we do our, our organizing, our advocacy, and our education. And you mentioned the Jubilee 2000 and also your scholarship around distilling an economic vision from both testaments. So how would you explain what Jesus's economic vision is for those Christians who have never encountered something like this before? Well, I think the most single most important thing for Christian readers of the Bible to understand is that uh, Jesus didn't invent his vision. He was drawing off deep roots in his scripture, the Hebrew Bible, uh, so that uh, what he does in his life and ministry is he both teaches and embodies the principles of Sabbath economics. Mm-hmm. Um, when when Jesus goes into the wilderness and is surrounded by crowds who are hungry and uh, marginalized, uh, a story that's told in all four of our Gospels, uh, and he uh, feeds the multitudes in the wilderness, uh, what is he doing? Well, he's he's really demonstrating, um, reenacting the vision of manna in the wilderness uh, that we that we find in the book of Exodus Exodus 16 and in many ways that is the the root of the Sabbath economics vision so if readers you know a lot of a lot of Christians today aren't too uh, literate in the left side of the Bible but they'll, they will remember that book of Exodus is a story about how slaves in Egypt experiencing extreme social and economic disparity being mm. on the bottom bottom of that social pyramid um, organized for freedom and eventually stage a walkout into the wilderness mm-hmm. led by Moses and once uh, once they have crossed through the Red Sea and gotten to freedom um, the question that obviously faces them is okay so we're not in Egypt anymore, so what does that mean? Who are we and how do we live? Uh, and so the very first lesson of liberated Israel is uh, articulated in Exodus 16, and that is the famous famous story of, of the manna. Uh, now, the, the story of the manna is um, largely trivialized as a Sunday school tale um, by Christians and spiritualized, but Really, the story of the man in the wilderness is a sophisticated catechism in socioeconomic equity. Mm. You might you might remember that um, Israel is instructed to gather this gift. So the manna is a symbol of divine uh, generosity. It is um, the first lesson in cosmology, if you will, that creator. Uh, freely gives the resources of the earth to human beings and all other living beings as well. Our mm-hmm. job is to gather it, uh, and that is work. But the lessons of Exodus 16 have to do with the ethics of how we gather it. And there are three lessons mm-hmm. uh, outlined in Exodus 16. One is, um, you might remember, when you go out and gather, make sure that you don't gather too much. Uh, and also make sure that if you just gather a little, you have enough. So here are the first principle mm. of 
mana economics is that there is such a thing as too much and there is such a thing as too little. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the second principle that Moses instructs the people in is uh, when you gather it, don't store it up, because if you do, it will compost on you. Um, this is an equally key insight because it um, <clears throat> mitigates against the notion that economics is all about accumulation, accumulation, accumulation. Um, in fact, it's supposed to be about circulation, 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 so that everyone has enough and no one has too little. So what we understand now is, in fact, these are two profound economic principles, the principle of enough for everyone and the principle of circulation versus accumulation. We'll also notice that both principles are diametrically opposed to the economic philosophy of modern capitalism. In modern capitalism, you cannot be too rich. Mm -hmm. And because we have an infinite tolerance for wealth, we also have an infinite tolerance for poverty. And hence, we have a world with lots of rich people and many, many more uh, desperately poor people. Mm -hmm. uh, we also live under capitalism in a society where um, accumulation is, in fact, the golden rule. Um, that That is how we build personal wealth, and we compete against everyone else so we can accumulate the most for ourselves. So the, the vision outlined in Exodus 16 really is a, a profoundly different economic cosmology from the one that you and I mm. have been socialized into. The, mm. third, the third principle in Exodus 16 is um, the principle of keeping Sabbath, and that's, of course, the first time that the Sabbath as a communal discipline is introduced mm. in, in, in Torah, in, in the uh, five books mm. of Moses. Uh, it is, of course, um, introduced as a creation principle in Genesis 1, but it here is a, uh, an ethos for a community, and that ethos is uh, six, week, uh, six days a week you gather, the seventh week you don't. And this is a principle of limits. Uh, it, it's, it's the idea that, um, we are supposed to put parameters on our production and our consumption so that on the seventh day, we can remember the first two principles and remember the creator who gave us those principles. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, the, the vision of Exodus 16, which, which I call Sabbath economics because it is a Sabbatary notion. Mm -hmm. um, then proceeds to be woven throughout the um, communal life of Israel, through Torah, through the prophets. Mm. Um, and, and so Jesus is, a, is an inheritor of that tradition. And uh, in his practice and in his teaching, he is endeavoring to find ways, as did prophets Jeremiah or Isaiah or Micah, hmm. um, he's endeavoring to um, reanimate people's commitment to that ancient vision, hmm. to, to bring it back to life. Why? Because um, ancient Israel, um, Jews at the time of Jesus in Palestine, Christians today, uh, we are notorious for having forgot these primal 
principles of faith and justice. And so we are always and ever in need of uh, reminding. Uh, so I believe that, that Jesus is um, the last great prophet of Sabbath economics uh, who shows and tells us about that, uh, the, the, the way of, of, of how to be human together um, according to the dream of God. Uh, so the, 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 the whole story of the Bible, and I would argue the whole story of Western civilization, is really a struggle between what we might call uh, manna economics and what Jesus clearly labels um, mammon economics mm-hmm. as the way of empire and the way of selfishness and the way of accumulation. Um, and and that, that struggle between manna and mammon is um, central to the plot of the Gospels. It's central to the teachings of Jesus, and it's central to our own um, struggles of discipleship mm-hmm. today. So that's that's kind of a, a nutshell of how Jesus is, is attempting to recontextualize an ancient vision um, for his time, and our job is to recontextualize his vision for our time. And I know in your book, Binding the Strong Man, you certainly pull out particular stories, particular parables, particular moments where there is that economic undercurrent to the whole gospel and to Jesus's vision for the world. You talk about an example such as the calling of disciples to become fishers of men and, and many others. I, I was wondering if you can perhaps give us some examples of some of those classic stories or parables or Jesus's lessons that actually do show that economics is part of the central motifs of his vision. You know, one of my teachers, um, William Herzog, <clears throat> Uh, talks about Jesus' parables as he says, you know, we've all heard the the framing of parables as earthly stories with heavenly meanings, uh, and and indeed I would say that that's been the hermeneutic position of a great deal of Western Christianity, particularly the Pietist mm-hmm. um, end of it and the evangelical end of it. The entire Bible is kind of an earthly story with heavenly meanings, but Herzog argues that we've gotten that exactly bass ackward, that in fact, parables in particular and the Bible in general is an earthy story with heavy meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's um, unfortunate to try to uh, look at the Bible and say, well, gee, I wonder if there are economic um, strands that we can pick out here and there uh, as if they're proof texts. I think the entire Bible is fundamentally economic because it's a Fundamental, fundamentally a story about human beings in the world. And human beings in the world are, by definition, economic. One of the biggest problems, both in churchly culture and in the way we approach the Bible, is the early Christian heresy called docetism. Docetism was a belief that Jesus wasn't completely human, that he was um, really a spirit being and uh, wasn't fully flesh. Uh, because in antiquity it was scandalous to imagine that God could become fully flesh. Well, of course, Orthodox Christians would um, contest that. We would argue that that the ancient confession, fully human and fully God, uh, means to um, 
uh, argue that Jesus was completely and fully human, and therefore completely and fully an economic being, mm. because we we can't be otherwise. If we eat, uh, if we create waste, uh, if we work, if we exchange goods, um, and all of us do, uh, we are economic. So it's not a question of whether the Bible is economic. It's a question of how these mm. stories are economic. And that's what Sabbath Economics in, endeavors to try to, to help reframe or reread these texts. So you mentioned the, the story of the call of the disciples and uh, call of disciples um, in in our earliest gospel, uh, which is Mark's, is it's kind of interesting that of all the people Jesus could have decided to build a movement with, he would choose people who um, were at the bottom of the social economic um, pyramid mm. it, in the particular decade in which he is living and ministering, uh, which is the second or third decade of the first century of the common era. Now, we know from sociological and archaeological studies of Roman-occupied Palestine mm. that the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee had been structurally adjusted by the Roman Empire uh, essentially to create an industry of um, food for export. And that's those structural adjustments um, had meant that peasant fishermen, of whom James, Andrew, and John were examples, had, had really fallen into poverty because their mm-hmm. formerly sustainable uh, way of subsistence fishing mm-hmm. um, had been um, completely uh, transformed it by taxes and tariffs and control of surplus and control of markets by the elites, both the Herodian elites and the Roman occupiers. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to note is that Jesus decides to build his movement not from the top down, but from the bottom up, starting with the most vulnerable, not unlike Gandhi, not unlike Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. who I think were inspired precisely by Jesus' example. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what does he ask those fisher people to do? He asks them to um, to become fishers of people. Now, of course, it's a beloved evangelical phrase, <laughs> um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we imagine in our docetic consciousness that he means that we go out and try to save souls one by one. Um, Whatever else that says about us, it bespeaks of our illiteracy in the Bible, because Jesus is alluding without mistake to the 8th century prophets who, were, who, who often used the metaphor of fishing uh, to critique the disparity between rich and poor in earlier empires. So in Amos chapter 4, um Yahweh uh the the prophet warns that Yahweh uh will haul away the rich like sardines to judgment the time is surely coming upon you who oppress the poor and crush the needy when they shall take you away with hooks even the last of you with fish hooks that's Amos 4 Jeremiah Jeremiah 16 speaks of God sending out for many fishermen in order to catch 
the wayward people of Israel, specifically those who have polluted the land with idols. Ezekiel 29 um, is a rant against Pharaoh, denouncing the empire's delusion that it owns the Nile River. Um, in contrast, God vows to yank the beast of Egypt right out of the river, hook, line, and sinker, along with all the fish to which Egypt claims exclusive rights. That's Ezekiel 29. And a fourth text from the prophet Habakkuk um, really could capture the lament of the hard-pressed first-century fishermen that Jesus was organizing with about how the empire is emptying their marine resources. Mm -hmm. Habakkuk 1, verses 14 to 17 reads, You have made people like the fish of the sea. The enemy brings them all up with a hook, drags them out with his net, gathers them in his seine. He exalts and makes sacrifices to his nets because his portion is lavish and his food is rich. And he keeps on emptying his nets and destroying nations without mercy. In other words, the idea of fishing and fish hooks and going after big fish who mm. empty the sea, uh, that's, that's a pretty uh, important prophetic metaphor that Jesus wow. is drawing upon. But you see, we're so focused on our docetic vision of saving souls and transporting, beaming people up into another world <laughs> that, we, that, that we miss the economic landscape. When, when Jesus starts his ministry, when he, when he walks into Capernaum on the northeast, uh, northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee in the second decade of the first century of the Common Era, he's walking into a distressed economic landscape. Uh, and he is bringing good news. Well, it's not good news if he's just offering pie in the sky. It's good news, and it's good news that's so good that these fishermen immediately drop their nets and follow him. He is offering them a vision of a different way to be, and yeah. that is a vision he immediately starts embodying in the very next chapter of Mark, where suddenly these fishermen are at table with tax collectors. Well, tax collectors were the primary agents of um, taxing uh, the fishermen. They were agents of the empire. And so Jesus is deconstructing these disparities of wealth and class um, in order to, to uh, create a new community in which no one has too much and no one has too little. Mm -hmm. And repeatedly throughout uh, the rest of the gospel narrative, uh, there's object lesson after object lesson of mm -hmm. how he does this on the ground concretely. So it, it's, it's, not, it, it's not that we're looking for a few proof texts. It's that we're trying to mm -hmm. um, operate what Latin Americans call a relectura, a rereading of the Bible as a fully human vision mm -hmm. of how to be together um, according to the dream of the God of justice. And um, there, there's so many examples of that, that that we could draw upon. So that's what we, the, the, the footprints of, econo of Sabbath economics really are throughout both Testaments. They're in Jesus, they're in Paul, they're in James, they're in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you, you really actually have to try to avoid them. But mm. under 500 years of um, socialization into market capitalism, our churches have gotten very adept at avoiding the, these central st- strands of scripture and learning how to spiritualize them. So uh, I believe our, our task today, if we want to renew both the church and the society around us that is suffering from so much disparity, uh, rereading of scripture is a really important discipline yeah. and an important strategy. Mm-hmm. Because it's very convenient when we have a gospel in wider society that's just about escaping the world as opposed to the renewal of the world because if it's about escapism then who cares about economic justice or who cares about justice full stop on the ground but as you've pointed out and and as of course the writers of both testaments clearly display the good news is the good news of jesus's rule and reign which of course would have an economic dimension yeah well, as uh, you and I were talking about before the broadcast, um, we're talking in the second week of June, uh, yeah. or the first, first week of June, second week in the season of Pentecost. And uh, this week, we had the spectacle of the American president um, calling riot troops to disperse protesters um, <clears throat> so that he could take a stroll to a church that never invited him to stand on the grounds and hold up a Bible. Well, there's a reason why Trump held up a Bible and never opened it because Mm. he's weaponizing that Bible. He's using it. He's using a notion of um, a shrunken and um, disabled scriptural consciousness Mm -hmm. to, to, um, to enforce um, a, a world in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Um, if he opens that Bible, that Bible is not going to be an ally. It's it's going to be um, an adversary. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's very poignant that he was brandishing a closed Bible as mm-hmm. opposed as opposed to um, opening the Bible in order to ignite an imagination for justice. And I guess on that as well, the imagination for justice that birthed out of Pentecost, as we are in the second week of Pentecost. Coming from my my background as somebody who is trying to embody part of the Pentecostal tradition, minus it's being co-opted by the escapist gospel, I can't help but think that in Acts chapter 2, once the Spirit does come down, as a friend of ours, Jared McKenna, says, it's not just a spiritual one-night stand, but actually that it's a result of the movement of the spirit that they then go out and they share all things in common. I, I, I can't help but think of a radical economic vision than that. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a minute because that's that's where we we are not only in the church season but uh, um, <clears throat> ironically and tragically Pentecost Sunday ten days ago um, here in the U.S. was. Um, very much a, a day of fires, but they were not fires of the spirit. They were fires of rage. Um, the, the story of Pentecost, you know, first of all, again, we Christians forget that Pentecost, as it's called, as it was called in the first century and as it's called in the New Testament, um, is Greek for 50 days. And um, those 50 days are referring to 
the Jewish feast of Shavuot, which is the harvest uh, festival uh, that's described in the book of Leviticus. And that festival was seven weeks long. Mm-hmm. Seven times seven equals 49, right? That, those, mm-hmm. are, those, those are jubilee numbers. So um, Leviticus 23, 15, when it's describing the feast of weeks or Shavuot, describes it like this, from the day after the Sabbath, from the day on which you bring the sheaf of the offering, count off seven weeks until the day after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days, hence Pentecost, then you shall present an offering of new grain to the Lord, right? This is offering the first harvest back to the giver, the great creator. Now, the instructions for the book, uh, for the feast of Jubilee, which is not an annual festival, as is Shavuot, but a uh, seven-year festival, um, Mm -hmm. or a 49-year festival, listen listen to the description of the Jubilee. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, giving 49 years, and you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And of course, in the biblical Jubilee, slaves are freed, the homeless are returned to the homes, and debts are forgiven. Mm-hmm. So the Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, is just the annual recommemoration of the Jubilee Sabbath economics vision. And so we're supposed to uh, remember every year the practices of how to restructure our economy every two generations or 50 years uh, mm-hmm. so that um, we can heal the wounds caused by some people getting too rich and some people getting too poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when when we read in Acts 2, the day when the day of Pentecost had come, that's meaning the day of Shavuot, that 50th day, um, when people come together, it is to celebrate the great vision of Sabbath economics. So it's it could hardly be surprising mm-hmm. that when the spirit falls, there are two moments of what we might call redistribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first comes with the redistribution of tongues, and the second at the beginning of Acts 2, and the second one comes at the end of Acts 2 with the redistribution of goods in the economy of shared mutual aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the redistribution of, of tongues is a redistribution of cultural power, right? Um, mm-hmm. Everyone hears the gospel in their own language, right? Language is a form of uh, identity, of dignity, of um, cultural power. In the first century empire and in our empire today, um, we live in monocultures, monocultures of language, monocultures of agribusiness, where we are destroying diversity in order to um, concentrate um, our resources in a few profitable enterprises uh, so as to make a few people richer. That's that's the disaster of monoculture. Mm-hmm. And what is the beginning of Acts 2 doing? It's revisiting mm-hmm. God's ancient judgment on the Genesis archetype of imperial monoculture, namely the Tower of Babel. God judges the Tower of Babel, which is a symbol of an empire in which everyone comes and speaks the same language, 
and builds up concentrations of wealth and power. And what does God do to heal that? He scatters people and everyone speaks different languages. Similarly, here at the heart of the Roman Empire, um, in the book of Acts 2, uh, we have this re-diversification of language. Everyone returns to their native tongue, the small little indigenous languages which um, <clears throat> are native to them, deconstructing the imperial language and the imperial monoculture. Uh, so that is a, a kind of um, redistribution mm. uh, at the beginning of the falling of the spirit. And of course, the, the end of uh, Acts 2 is the, the equally famous um, community of uh, sharing. Uh, mm. The same verb is used there, diamerizo. It means to redistribute. Mm. Um, so just as cultural power was redistributed, so economic power is redistributed very specifically in Acts 4.34 and following so that everyone has enough. Mm. Uh, wow. So this is, um, this is one of the many reminders that Sabbath economics is not a marginal note in the biblical tradition, but indeed right at its center. So that the very birth of the church, the very first iteration of what it means to be followers of Jesus in our world. Um, what's the first lesson? It's the same lesson as it was to Israel in the wilderness. It's the economics of enough. It's the redistribution of power. And it's um, the celebration of being a community of Sabbath economics. Which shouldn't really surprise us, like in terms of of the first thing that God will say in the wilderness, and then the first thing that the Spirit would do to the early church would be economics. Because, of course, the more I reflect and the more I think about it, I can't help but think how all of our lives are bound up to how we order ourselves economically in the world. Like, if you think about other social injustices, how much they're so intertwined to, well, do people even have enough to get food on the table? And if they don't, well... Of course, they're going to act in, in ways that um, aren't for their benefit or the community's benefit. Like, I can't help but think it's all economically intertwined. Well, it is. And, and, and it's important to, to realize that when, when we talk about economics, we're, we're talking about the fact that we live in a world where there are truly different economic visions. We, yeah. we live in an economic cosmology, as I said, where we have this infinite tolerance for for uh, poverty and indeed for destitution. People die on our streets, particularly in the United States. Um, people die around the world, and it doesn't particularly ruffle the feathers of most Christians. We've made our peace with that. But the scripture um, is, is far more um, strident. Mm. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15 is one of the many other reiterations of Sabbath economics, and there the command uh, says, there will be no one destitute among you. Mm -hmm. um, now that phrase is exactly echoed in Acts 4.34. Once everything was distributed, there was no one destitute among them. Now, this, this is a vision. Do we still even bother to, to try to take seriously the vision of a world where no one is destitute? Um, I think most, um, certainly most third, uh, first world Christians have given up on that um, vision, the vision of God, the vision of Jesus, the vision of the early church. Um, mm -hmm. 
But if we want to be followers of biblical faith, then we can't give up on that vision. And it is central to our discipleship to figure out both personally and politically how to be in a historic struggle against destitution. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here we are again talking in early June. Um, here in the U.S., we're in the middle of an absolute um, hurricane of rage because of multiple destitutions. The destitution mm-hmm. of um, uh, the pandemic, which has unmasked the socioeconomic inequality mm-hmm. and thus is impacting people of color and poor people um, immensely uh, greater than it is uh, middle class and white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, a related virus, the virus of, of racism, mm-hmm. which is uh, expressed through the uh, murder of black men in the streets by our police, um, most recently Brother Floyd, um, which which has incited this rage, this long lingering rage, rage because it's it's just another latest in a string of um, episodes in which people of color are being um, incarcerated, disproportionately killed, disproportionately in the streets. Um, that too is a virus. One black preacher called it. Um, not the COVID-19 virus, but the 1619 virus. 1619 was the year where, when the first African slaves were brought to the shores of America. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we, we commemorated the 500th year of that just last year. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with COVID-19, we're dealing with 1619, and we're mm-hmm. dealing with an economy which um, uh, makes it almost impossible for um, poor folk and and marginalized people of color and low-wage workers to survive the other pandemics. Mm. Uh, So we live in a world where destitution has been institutionalized. And that's just not, that that cannot possibly be acceptable Mm. to those of us who who claim the way of Jesus and claim the Bible as our instruction book Mm. um, and as the word of God. So um, it's, it's my hope. Uh, has always been our our hope in in being animators of the biblical vision of Sabbath economics to try to get us Christians to return to the roots of our faith. And that's mm-hmm. why we talk about radical Christianity, right? Radical simply means going to the roots. And mm-hmm. when we look at Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 15 and Jeremiah and Amos, and we look at the teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus in the Gospels, when we look at the birth of the early church in Acts, and we look at uh, Paul and James. Yeah. What, what do we see lying at those roots? We see the vision and practice of Sabbath economics. I mean, I say yes and amen. I imagine though some of my listeners, they often hear the talk of like dismantling capitalism and things like that. And some of them often ask me the question, I was like, oh, so are we, are we just wanting socialism? And I just wanted to bring that question to you. Like, are we talking about a third way or are we just talking about going from capitalism to socialism or are we saying that Jesus, with not only dismantling capitalism, that he's also transcending mere socialism? What, what would you say to, to people's pushback that it's that would just bring a, a socialist vision? Yeah. Well, of course, we uh, modern Western Christians... Um, <clears throat> 
just as we tend to be captive to the subtexts of ancient docetism, where we have a hard time with the fully human Jesus, we're also very much captive to what we might call the sociodrama of modernity, um, in which first capitalism and then socialism became contesters for our hearts and souls. But we don't realize that this sociodrama is really a very modern kind of um, mm. way of framing the issue. And um, if, if we imagine those are the only two choices, then we are simply being captive to the modern narrative. That's one of the reasons why we think it's important to go outside of the modern narrative mm-hmm. to regain our political and social imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, biblical testimonies are, um, they, they don't understand capitalism, they don't understand socialism, right? State socialism is just the heretical antithesis of state capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just a, the difference between state show, socialism and, and capitalism is um, <clears throat> the degree to which state apparatus controls capital and controls the movement of capital and controls the relations of production. Um, in capitalism, the the market supposedly controls it, and under state socialism, such as communist China, um, the state apparatus does it. But both systems are beholden to uh, the industrial mode of production, beholden to the accumulation of wealth. Um, uh, beholden to the economics of growth, beholden mm-hmm. to the pillaging of the environment, uh, right? So, so I think it's when people say, "Well, gee, if you know, if 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 we can't be the angel of capitalism, are you saying we should be the devil of socialism?" That's that's a deeply impoverished um, economic and social imagination. That's a straitjacket that we think we need to try to move beyond. Now. Some of the 19th century critics of capitalist systems um, had a great deal to say about what was wrong with emerging industrial capitalism. Um, And I think being in conversation with those critics, whether they called themselves socialists, communists, labor activists, anarchists, uh, or just social gospelers, um, that's worth worth having that conversation. But I think we have to have a much more expansive view of what's possible and insist that the gospel is incommensurable with either uh, modern capitalism or modern state socialism, meaning that um, the gospel asks questions which neither of those systems um, can answer. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so, in, in, in my opinion, uh, we've got to work inductively to figure out how we can think and imagine and live differently in the shell of a world which um, is under that straitjacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what the great, the, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Dorothy Day, called building a new world in the shell of the, of, of the old. That's what um, it has always been our church's vocation mm-hmm. to, to be about, to be a uh, a demonstration project. That was the uh, metaphor used by the great Baptist radical Clarence Jordan um, mm. in in the United States, who um, defied um, 
Jim Crow racism in the 1940s and Cold War capitalism in the 1950s to build an interracial cooperative farm in the Deep South mm. um, and to do so based on the gospel. There are so many, he, he said, we've got to be about building demonstration projects, not just talking about it, but mm. trying to embody it so that folks can see and respond differently. That's how the church has always grown <clears throat> at its best. Mm. Uh, again, not from the top down, but by um, uh, it embodying in our own communities the values that that we speak that we speak of. So, mm. in our in our Sabbath economics work, um, we try to get people to to start rebooting their imagination at the level of what we call household economics. Mm. Household economics. <clears throat> um, actually themselves tend to run against the grain of um, capitalism uh, because we, in a, in a household, whether it's a small household or a larger family household or mm. an inter-family household, what do we tend to do? We tend to work cooperatively in our labor. We tend to share our capital. We tend to produce Collectively and cooperatively, we tend to consume collectively and cooperatively, and um, it it would be unthinkable to live in a household where someone is starving and someone is feasting. That that just that just mm, is not yeah. in households. So we try to say, look, this is actually the, the household is the remnant of the way that most human beings used to live in a kindred. Um, cooperative <clears throat> style of mutual aid, and and we have the remnants there. So let's start there and start to push that out um, into broader and broader circles. And that's where the um, the <clears throat> follow-up work, uh, mm. the se sequel, as it were, to our biblical vision of Sabbath economics framing <clears throat> is called our Sabbath economics household covenant. In mm. that covenant work, we um, we encourage people to look at one of to, to look at all of seven areas of our social and economic life. Right? It's got to be seven because it's Sabbath economics. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> the first three of those areas have to do with capital because we live in capitalism and money is an idol and um, that idol inhabits our spirits, lives within us and around us. And so we have to do serious spiritual and social battle with the, those, those unclean spirits of mm. uh, capitalism. Uh, and the other four have to do with lifestyle. Mm. So I'll just, I'll just run, run mm. through them. Um, the, the first set of issues we invite Christians at the household level to look at is what do we do with our surplus capital? First of all, how and why do we have surplus? And secondly, if we do, what do we do with it? Do we just give it to corporate banks so Wall Street bankers can get richer? Or do we make that surplus capital available to others who are poor precisely because they do not have mm -hmm. um, excess capital? Uh, so it's a question of how, to, how do you invest? How do you bank? Um, how do you uh, circulate your own surplus in ways that help helps build the beloved community. Mm -hmm. The second question is, how do you deal with negative capital, which is to say debt? Um, are you beholden to debt? If so, why? 
Um, how can you deconstruct debt? How can you build communities of cooperation to use surplus capital in one uh, space to relieve negative capital in another space? Because mm-hmm. indebtedness is is such a politically and socially um, paralyzing condition for uh, for people. Mm-hmm. And third, and the third area is how do you how do you work charitably? Who do you give to? And how do you give strategically and relationally? Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you just kind of close your eyes and write a check? Do you allow um, big um, the the nonprofit industrial complex to determine where your charitable dollars go, or are you creative and local in um, in in your giving? So uh, those first three areas of the Sabbath economics covenant have to do mm-hmm. with how we handle our money. The the final four lifestyle areas are. Um, how do we? How does our lifestyle impact the environment? So, what kind of mm. ecological footprint do we have? Whether it's um, uh, fossil fuels uh, or um, plastics, uh, <clears throat> or uh, you know how we how we build, how mm. we consume, um, and that brings us to the fifth area, which is consumption which in a consumer society is always a challenge. How do we reduce our consumption? How do we be more modest in our consumption? How do we, how do we consume locally? How do we consume responsibly? Uh, how do we make sure that our dollars go to support um, sustainable enterprises, just enterprises, um, uh, and not uh, businesses that just, again, make a few people rich while exploiting their workers? Uh, the sixth area is in what ways am I standing in solidarity with the destitute and the disinherited, both locally, nationally, and internationally? So what are the concrete uh, expressions of solidarity? And finally, um, and this, frankly, for me, is the biggest challenge. Mm. The, the seventh area is how do we work and how do we rest, right? How do we practice mm. Um and how do we set limits on everything we do, including our organizing and advocacy? Um, that, that's one I really struggle with because, I, you know, there's always so much to do and these issues are so important that it's easy not to um, take that rest and get that perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I'm happy. I'm, I'm very happy to, to report that um, in Australia, um, there, there are people... Um, who are have adapted our Sabbath economics um, uh, covenant to the Australia Australian context, mm. Mm. Uh, okay. and and they're based in Victoria, mm. uh, and it's called Mana Gum Enough for All. Oh yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, that's right. You can find them at managum.org.au, and they've they've done a, a great job working this stuff very contextually in Australia, and I highly recommend them. That's that's fantastic, Ched, to to give those resources, to give those those seven steps, and all of this tells me, as as per what I asked before, that it certainly is something that transcends kind of that mere socialism, that mere state socialism. It certainly dismantles capitalism, uh, and it gets me thinking. You know what what would be different in the church if we did change to Jesus's vision? Because this all sounds amazing. <laughs> Well, and 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 by by focusing on uh, as a starting point, as a as a focalizer, 
for Sabbath economics <clears throat> in the household, we don't mean to suggest that there are personal solutions to all the really complicated political mm. and yeah. economic problems, because yeah. that that's a fallacy that is already too well entrenched uh, among yes. evangelicals. What we mean to say is, at the level of household economics, that is the, that's the place where my life and the life of my family <clears throat> concretely intersect with the systems and structures of global capitalism. So that's the place where I um, exercise my agency, where I make important choices, where, um, where I practice the catechism of mm. Sabbath economics, which is both an inward and an outward journey. It mm. has to do um, things that are very personal and also has to do with things that have political implications. But to do that at the household level is to gain traction and to become empowered to then broaden the scope of household Sabbath economics, to broaden it to my church, church community, to my congregation, mm. to my group, to my um, friendship group, to my neighborhood, mm. um, to my um, social organization, mm. um, to my city council. Um, you know, that, that's how we begin spreading out this vision, mm. um, showing it and telling it. But we always are grounded in actual practices. Uh, so we're not waiting for the great revolution before we change um, how we are with one another. The revolution begins now and it spreads outward from that ancient base of being family together. Mm. Um, you know, that metaphor of being family together was a central metaphor for the early church. That's yeah. why the Apostle Paul used kinship language. That was not language that anybody else in antiquity ever used because in antiquity they understood that if you call someone brother or sister that morally obligates you to te to treat them as kin which means you can't compete with them you can't exploit them um you can't ignore them and wow. so by calling people by using kinship language uh the early church was precisely saying we are um, spreading this revolution until the whole world begins to understand that we are, in fact, kindred under God. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is the great vision of the Bible. Um, and it's an economic and social vision, not just a spiritual one. So our, our belief is, and I know Manigam would agree, is that by practicing Sabbath economics, um, <clears throat> we begin to spread and seed um, this antibody to the virus mm. so that he healing can spread. We often, um, Nathan, compare it to 12-step recovery work. And I think it's a good analogy mm. that we are working on our own addictions and we're working at the family and household level on our addictions. Um, and we understand it's a lifelong journey. And we want to spread that defection from, from addiction not just to private addictions, but to the public addictions of racism and militarism and greed that infect our body politic. So that's, that's, uh, that's the vision. And, and I really hope that uh, your listeners will check out um, Managam um, as, as a curator of this uh, vision in the Australian context. 
And certainly they're welcome to find us at uh, bcm-net.org here in the States where you can find mm -hmm. some of these resources as well. Um, we, uh, we think this is not only a way to respond to the social and economic crises um, amidst which we dwell. We think this is the key for the church recovering its identity as church. Yeah. Um, and, and so for us, this is a necessarily theological project. It's a necessarily spiritual project. Um, and it's a necessarily ecclesial project. Um, and we're, <clears throat> we're so glad that you expressed uh, interest to, to, to hear about it. Mm -hmm. uh, be because we think it's really uh, fundamental to your vision of trying to go deeper and wider in the mm -hmm. Australian text. Thank you, Chad. And, and thank you so much for those resources as well. And thank you so much for your time and for your witness as well in the world. I'm so thankful for the work you have done, are doing, and are going to do. And this has just been a wonderful conversation that I hope gets turned into action as well. Thanks for what you're doing uh, out there in WA, and <clears throat> I hope your listeners will um, will really uh, find ways to um, metabolize these visions and inhabit these practices, uh, because we desperately need the church to be a Sabbath economics church mm -hmm. uh, in this in this time. So thanks a lot for your interest. Well, that was this week's episode with Ched Myers. To find out more about the work that Ched Myers engages in, then visit him at chedmyers.org. Also, check out Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries at www.bcm-net.org. If you like what you listen to today, then please subscribe to this show, leave a review, and share with your friends. To follow my work, find me on either Facebook at Nathan.Forster or Instagram and Twitter at Nathan underscore Forster or find me at NathanForster.com.